everybody, and welcome to the Frontside Podcast, episode 51. I'm here. My name is Charles Lowell. I'll be hosting today. With me is Chris Freeman, also of the Frontside, and with us is Steve Klabnik. Now, most of you have probably heard of Steve before. I know uh, my first encounter with Steve was actually at a Lone Star Ruby conference back in, gosh, I don't know, it it was many, many years ago, and he was giving a talk on shoes, which I also had never heard of before, and it was a wonderful story of a code archaeology project where he was kind of uh, investigating and rehabilitating and then carrying forward a, uh, a project that uh, Why the Lucky Stiff had done. Um, and so that was a wonderful introduction, uh, but it was certainly not the last time that uh, I encountered him and his writings and talks and stuff, uh, mostly uh, within the Ruby community. But, uh, you know, he popped up again and again, talking about uh, REST APIs um, and always making a point to, you know, take good knowledge that he'd learned and, and spread it around. Um, and, you know, personally, I'd lost track uh, of Steve or hadn't really heard much of what he was doing for a while. But then Chris came into the office and he was always talking about this language called Rust. Uh, and while I'd heard Rust, you know, Chris was just all about it and uh, wanted to have Steve come on the show because it turns out that Steve, you've been really, really, really into Rust these last few years uh, and doing, it sounds like, concentrating most of your work there. That is totally true and accurate. Also, to go back a bit, that means that you were in attendance for my very first conference talk ever. Really? That was literally the first one. Well, wow. It was a, <laughs> it was a great start. That was a great story. Uh, it was educational and also touching. Thank you. It's actually slightly interesting because what happened was is that someone else who worked on shoes had encouraged me to submit to RubyConf. And I was like, who would want to hear me talk at a conference? So I submitted the talk and RubyConf accepted it. And I was really excited. And then a bunch of other conferences noticed. And two other conferences had asked me to give the talk before RubyConf happened. And Lone Star was one of them. And it was the first one, like, chronologically. So that that moment was also very special to me as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic. So what, what year was that? I want to say it was, like, 2012 or 11. Yeah. It's really hard for me to pay attention to time and like date. My history is so complicated. I often forget. I've literally told people that I'm 10 years older or younger than I am because I will like mess up the date on a thing. So it just, it happens. Yeah. But it was a while ago and it's been uh, quite a journey in between now and then. Yeah, definitely. And you're also definitely right. So it is now literally my day job to work on Rust. So it is definitely the focus of most of my efforts. And partly why I made that happen was because it was the focus of all my hobby efforts before I made it my job. So, you know, it's definitely been a couple years that I've been full time on all the Rust stuff. So how was it that you actually got into Rust? Like, how did you hear about it before everybody else? And how did it like kind of capture your attention? I've always liked programming languages and learning different programming languages. Ruby was sort of where I became known professionally, but it wasn't the, you know, the first language that I knew. And I knew it was never going to be the last Um, as much as I always loved Ruby and I like literally have a tattoo on my body. So I will be with Ruby forever. (laughs) I always try to learn new stuff and uh, I find it exciting. So I'm from uh, middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, uh, in the suburbs of Pittsburgh on a cattle farm. And I was visiting my parents for Christmas one year and there's not really a whole lot to do out in that very small town, so I was just reading the internet as usual, and it turns out that that was the day that Rust 0.5 had been released. So I saw this release announcement go by, and I was like, huh, I've vaguely heard of this programming language once or twice, maybe. I don't really have anything to do. Let's give it a try. So I downloaded and installed it. I looked at their tutorial, and the tutorial was... It has a problem that a lot of tutorials had, which is I read it. I said, this all makes sense. I tried to sit down and write a program. And I had no idea how to actually write a program in it at all. Like, I just was completely confused. I couldn't actually apply the sort of syntax stuff that I learned. So at the same time, I was going to be working on this hypermedia book. That was one of my plans for the uh, that trip. As always, you just rewrite your tooling over and over again, right? You start yak shave on, like, just don't write the thing. Write the tools that make the thing. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to try out a new way to take Markdown and generate PDFs and HTML involving Pandoc. And so I sort of had that all set up and I said, well, let me give this a try run. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to write down what I learned in Rust as I learned it and sort of from a Ruby programmer's perspective. And then I'll use that, you know, working with my new tooling to see if it works to actually work on the real book. And it'll also help me understand Rust better because one of the reasons why I do all this sort of teaching and advocacy is because I think it helps me learn just as much as I like helping other people learn stuff. I find that the repetition and being forced to explain something to someone else really makes sure that I understand what I'm talking about. So that's how this thing called Rust for Rubyists became born. I'm a sucker for alliteration. And uh, that sort of became the first tutorial for Rust from outside of the Rust project proper. 
And so from there, I went on to submit some pull requests because everything's open source. So I wrote some documentation. And funny enough, my first ever pull request to Rust was actually rejected based on procedural grounds. So at the time, they didn't actually accept pull requests to master. They accepted just this other weird branch. And GitHub did not have the ability to retarget the branch of your pull request. So um, I also always like this story because like the thing that I now am on the core team of, like my first attempt at getting involved was like wrong and was, you know, turned down. But I refixed that pull request issue and got that in. But I just kind of kept working on it in an open source capacity for a while and then decided to ask Mozilla if I could make it my job. And luckily, they said yes. Wow. So wait, you invented your job at Mozilla? Like You just kind of showed up and said, hey, I would like to have a pretty cool, awesome job working on this brand new language. And they were like, sure, come on in. So to some degree, yes, that's one way of putting it. There's always the devil in the details, right? So the first thing is, is that that wouldn't have worked if I had wanted a different kind of job. But when someone comes to you and says, I would like to write documentation for you all day, you go, oh my gosh, this yes. is something that literally <laughs> never happens, right? So if I had wanted to like work on the compiler, I'm pretty sure they would have said no. But because they knew documentation was important and they wanted documentation, and because I had already been basically doing that job in an open source way, it's like I had had you know, a year-long interview already. And then finally, they actually didn't have headcount at the time. So I actually moved on as a contractor initially and had to do some freelance work. And then eventually, once we were able to hire a new person, kind of got it in. So the like cool kid story is like, oh, yeah, I totally asked Mozilla for my perfect dream job. And they just gave it to me. But like, that's not, you know, really the way that it works. Gotcha. So uh, that actually leads me into uh, a question that I have wanted to ask you. You write documentation, very good documentation as your day job and documentation is extremely hard well okay for me it is extremely hard to get and stay motivated to document something that i've worked on and i think that that is probably a common enough experience for programmers and we all recognize because we use documentation that it's extremely valuable and yet it still is this thing that is just constant uphill battle so i'm curious how do you manage to stay motivated to write documentation for an entire programming language over the span of years? As I often want to do, this has like three or four different components. So I guess there's a couple different things involved. The first one is, is that I actually got accepted to go to English grad school, although I ended up not pursuing that. So like writing is something that I have just always enjoyed, period. Um, I got a bachelor's in computer science but then I was going to go to grad school for English and due to university shenanigans, it didn't really work out. Like they told me I was going to get a free ride and then accepted me. And then they were like, oh, wait, sorry, you have to pay for this. And I was like, oh, wait, sorry. No, I'm not doing this anymore. That's ridiculous. <laughs> so I've kind of always had a predilection for writing. And I think that the reason why that is, is because I grew up basically like on Slashdot and eventually then on Dig and Reddit and all these other things. And so I've kind of been writing a couple paragraphs a day, basically every day in my life since I was a little kid. And I think that's something that's sort of like underappreciated. Documentation is hard, but it's like a skill like any other thing, right? So programmers will say, I really want to learn TDD. So I'm going to just like make myself do some TDD and I'm going to practice it and I'm going to focus on it. And that's going to be a skill I'm going to improve. And then they see documentation and they kind of think it's this thing that you either have the skill or you don't. But writing is just another thing like anything else that you can practice at and get better than. So I think that there's also kind of a, you know, maybe it's because it's a little bit farther away from the wheelhouse of what you do day to day that people aren't as interested in it. But if it's something you're truly interested in, I think the best way to get better is just to do it and do it a lot. I say this as I'm kind of in the middle of a little bit of writer's block at the moment, to be honest. <laughs> um, and then finally, I think the other reason that I'm motivated about docs is that I actually believe that documentation is an exercise in empathy. So like good documentation, like the ideal as a programmer, the ideal thing that happens in documentation is I have a question about how to use something. I go to the documentation and it says the exact sentence that answers my exact question, right? And so there's varying degrees of like vaguely gives you the right idea versus literally tells you exactly what to do. And so I think that the way that you can accomplish that like excellent documentation is by understanding what your users need and then preemptively figuring it out and or like writing that down. And I think that that requires being able to put yourself in their shoes to some degree. And so I'm not going to say that that's a thing that I am perfect at, but I think that it's a valuable skill when trying to improve docs is like 
figure out what they actually need and then give it to them. And, or, you know, it doesn't always have to be in that order, right? Like sometimes people will fail to find the thing they need, tell you what you need, and then you give it to them. Right. So that's a strategy I've used a lot. And there's one reason why um, I hang out in the Rust IRC all the time, helping people is for a very long time, I would like sit in IRC, someone would ask a question, I would answer their question, I'd go look in the docs and see if they could have figured it out themselves. And if they couldn't, that would be my next doc PR. It's just like, even if it was just a couple sentences, like add the question from IRC into the documentation, and then just do that over and over and over again. And then eventually people start, you know, learning from the docs instead of act- actively asking questions because they already found what they needed. Right. Wow. I have a, a, a question about that because like once you've developed those skills, I think don't you also still run the risk of like burning out. And I know that one of the reasons I tend to always fall back to like, oh, I'm going to spend my time doing coding uh, instead of documentation or I'm going to spend my time, you know, even with like with, with TDD is a great example is like with TDD, you get to experience those short term wins. I think and that kind of prevents you from burning out. Uh, whereas sometimes when I'm writing documentation, it feels like I'm screaming at the void. And I might be screaming really loud and really, really well, uh, but I feel like, you know, a lot of times I'm not experiencing those wins. And I'm wondering if you have any, you know, tips for like experiencing those wins or, you know, getting that feedback to kind of keep you motivated and keep you doing the job and also trying to, you know, push the level of your own documentation skill uh, and communication skill. Yeah. So experiencing the wins is definitely part of it. But one of the other things that is sort of part of it is that like, I do the opposite. So like I do a, a lot of coding, but that's my side projects. Like when I get fed up with writing documentation, like I maintain the Semver implementation that Cargo uses to resolve like Rust packages, for example. So if I'm feeling a little stuck on docs, I'll go write some software and then come back to the docs. So that can kind of help with burnout. Another thing is that I think I'm just like perpetually in a state of just barely above burnout anyway. And so that's, <laughs> that also sort of factors in, I guess, uh, you know, is like, what's the Bruce Banner, right? The secret is that I'm always angry. So you, <laughs> so know, you work on open source. Yeah, is exactly. what you're saying. I just work on open source all the time. <laughs> um, I've been lucky enough to make open source, you know, my job for the last, basically almost my entire professional career, although not totally. So, uh, you know, at some point you just kind of get used to it, but in terms of experiencing the wins. So this is also one of the reasons why I like to teach beginners specifically is that the beginners allow you to like remember what it's like to be a beginner, which is also part of building that empathy. And so by interacting with beginners a lot, you also get a lot of those wins because beginners usually ask easy questions. So it's easy to like figure out how to answer that stuff. And then, you know, you've like got that positive feedback loop kind of going. So to me, it's like, you know, maybe not IRC literally for every project, but like answering questions on Stack Overflow or like whatever message board forum you have or like Twitter, like actually interacting with other people. For me, at least, that's how I get that kind of sense of not screaming into the void. And so you have to like go into the void and find the other people there, I guess. They don't just like come to you necessarily. <laughs> So speaking of empathy for beginners, it just occurred to me that we didn't actually talk about what Rust is. (laughs) And we probably should do that. Yeah, so why don't you tell us a little bit about Rust, the language, as well as uh, you mentioned Cargo. And so I know there's an ecosystem for Rust as well. So yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, totally. So basically, Rust is a new, new-ish. I should, I should really stop saying new because it's almost not really at this point. Kind of new-ish programming language, heavily sponsored by Mozilla in development. And its idea is to become a new low-level programming language. But I always hesitate when I say this because, so like one of the, my old pitches for Rust used to be like, Rust could be used anywhere you can use C. And then people go, I would never write C. So cool, Rust is not for <laughs> me and like not do that, right? But the reason that people don't use C is a lot of the problems that we are also trying to fix. So I guess the primary differentiator for Rust in terms of like programming language theory is that it is safe and safety has like a sort of specific meaning. But basically, you know, C is a very dangerous, sharp tool and you can cut yourself and people who use those tools often do cut themselves. Whereas Rust is kind of like it's got a safety guard on it. So Rust will prevent you, it's a compiled language, so its compiler actively prevents you from making some of the worst mistakes that you can make in a low-level programming language like C. And it turns out that 
when you start building up these sort of safe abstractions on top of these really fundamentally, you know, low level details, you actually end up with a relatively high level programming language. You know, I talk to a lot of people, for example, from, you know, JavaScript or Ruby world or Python world who come to Rust and, you know, our modulus and libraries and some other things are like, this is actually high level enough that I feel like I could do this instead of Ruby or JavaScript all day. And I would be just as comfortable. The other day, I did a little bit of programming, and we actually recreated a JavaScript library in Rust that had virtually the same interface. Because like oh, wow. you can actually build relatively high level things, and so passing a closure to a function that does some stuff is like totally normal in Rust world. And it's also very familiar to people that come from the sort of Ruby, JavaScript, Python kind of background. And also, then as part of that is we also culturally like Rust the project, not Rust the programming language, really really cares about helping people understand what systems programming and like lower level programming means. And so we also like a lot of people will not program in C or C++ because they have no idea how to get help or to learn because, you know, many people in the low level space have this, uh, you know, RTFM kind of attitude or like, if you don't know what you're doing, then get out of here. Whereas in Rust world, if you ask an extremely basic question, we're like, oh, hey, welcome. We would love to have you. I would be very happy to like walk you through like explaining how that works or these kind of low-level details. And so we also kind of consider it like a part of the culture of, of Rust is to bring this sort of low-level programming to people that have rejected it before for various reasons. The reason that Mozilla cares and the reason Mozilla sponsors the project is that Firefox is written in C++. So like 4 million lines of C++ last I checked. And most of the, well, I shouldn't say most. Last time we did a security audit of the like really pants on fire, terrible security bugs in Firefox. Like I go to this website and now they run arbitrary code on my machine kinds of terrifying bugs Ooh. basically happen because C++ is dangerous and sharp. And if you screw up, those are the kind of bad things that can happen. So about 50% of those security issues in Firefox would be eliminated at compile time by the Rust compiler. And so that's like a really huge win in general. And so the idea is that we uh, are slowly rewriting Firefox in Rust over time. And so that's like one angle of like why Mozilla cares about Rust. The second part is Servo, which is a rendering engine that's built in Rust from the ground up. So like if you think about Firefox proper, it's got Gecko as like the rendering engine inside that actually determines where things go on the page and stuff. So we we're also writing a new one of those from scratch called Servo in Rust. And so that was also to prove that the language was doing the kind of things that we needed it to do. But also, you know, Servo is an impressive piece of technology in its own right. And so it might become its own thing and or bits and pieces of it are already making their way into Firefox. And so it's kind of also like a way to improve our core product. So that's why Mozilla cares. I was curious with Servo, Servo is the layout engine. Do you know if there are any plans to write a JavaScript runtime in Rust? So that question is complicated. Sort of what it boils down to is that a JIT is inherently kind of unsafe by Rust definition of unsafety. Uh, and so yeah. it's actually controversial. Like when I talk to people that work on JavaScript things uh, or engines, not things, they are pretty much 50-50 split between, oh yeah, totally, let's absolutely rewrite the whole thing in Rust because we rewrite it every two or three years anyway from scratch. So why not use Rust next time? To, since it's massively unsafe anyway, I don't see what benefit I would actually get, so why not just stick with what we know? And it's like very extreme ends. So it's definitely feasible, but it's, you know, I don't know uh, if it's going to happen and or when exactly. So there were two questions that I had kind of to unpack some of the things that you said in there that were just really interesting to me. You said Mozilla plans to incrementally rewrite Firefox in Rust you know, where it's currently 4 million lines of C++. Now, how does that actually work uh, where you have, you know, you're talking about swapping out large parts of the runtime with something that's written in a completely separate language. Like how does that communication happen between those language boundaries? So there's this concept called an ABI, not API. They sound very similar. Application binary interface. And what this really boils down to is assembly language does not have function calls. Like that's not a concept that's in assembly. So people have come up with, okay, if I write a function and I map it to assembly code, what's the sort of convention about how I do things like passing in arguments and return values? And like, how does all that stuff actually work? And because assembly is so low level, there are multiple different ways that you can kind of like make that happen. 
And so there's a number of different specifications for like how to make that work. And so C, the programming language, has a very straightforward ABI. And so any programming language that knows how to call C functions uses these conventions like at the assembly level to do the function call. So what you can do with Rust is you can say, hey, please make this Rust function follow the C calling convention. And that way, any sort of thing that knows how to call C functions can call Rust functions directly. And by doing that, you can sort of say, like, take a chunk of code, uh, write it in Rust, expose a C interface, and then anything that knows how to talk to C, which is virtually everything, can talk to Rust equally as well. So, for example, one of the earliest production uses of Rust was actually inside of a Ruby gem, because Ruby can be extended with C, and Ruby knows how to have C extensions. So it doesn't actually need to know that it's literally written in C. It just needs to know how to generate the assembly to call the correct functions. And so that's actually like a thing. So that's basically the process is like write a component in Rust, expose this language independent, you know, uh, wrapper, and then call into it like you would C code. So it's really just, you know, they're sharing memory. It's sharing. It's like right there in the process. And so, you know, there's no like overhead. For that intercommunication, sounds like. Yeah, exactly. You can also do all the regular things with, like, you know, JSON RPC over a socket or whatever if you wanted to. But, like, the most efficient way is to just, like, literally include it as your binary just like anything else. Which kind of leads me into my next question, which is, you know, one of the, you know, as you know, Rubyist, as Pythonistas, people coming from JavaScript, one of the reasons we don't like to write in C is because, as you mentioned, they're so sharp. So we have, you know, we have uh, safety so that you don't have to worry about memory allocation. For the most part, you know, the garbage collector kind of has your back there. You know, you access things by reference. And so you don't ever have to worry about accessing memory that's not there. But kind of the conventional wisdom is that that all comes with a pretty big cost. Uh, it's like really, really expensive. And so I know like uh, when I was getting into Ruby, when I was explaining it, a lot of the pushback I got from people doing C and even Java is like, oh, it's going to be you know super slow because all those features that you love so much, these high level features, well, they, you're paying a lot, a lot, a lot for them. And, you know, my understanding is that's not really true with Rust. Is that fair to say? Well, it's that Rust does not have a garbage collector. So yes, it does not pay that cost because it doesn't exist. Now, that also raises a bunch of other interesting questions. And basically what it boils down to is a compiler, and especially one that has a type system, basically asks you to like declare certain properties of your code. Like this function takes one argument only, and it's always a string. And that's like sort of what type safety means at kind of like a fundamental level, right? So one of the ways that Rust uses type safety is to say, hey, this pointer to this memory always points to valid memory. And you have to be able to demonstrate that to me at compile time. And from just those couple of sentences, that sounds extremely complicated. But it turns out that most programming code is written in a way that actually works this way. So, for example, I've like talked to Yehuda Katz a number of times because, you know, we're friends. He also works on the Rust project and is also well-known in, in JavaScript and to you all, um, I would assume. And so, like, he's like, it turns out that the style of Rust code I write is actually extremely similar to the style of JavaScript code that I write. It's just sometimes there are some tweaks. So it is true that those features often do take up, you know, a lot of memory and or rely on these sort of expensive, you know, from a low-level perspective way of doing things. But it turns out that that's actually more of a function of the, like, way that the programming language is made and its semantics. And you could design a programming language that feels very similar, but has very different underlying characteristics. So, for example, closures in Rust. The compiler is smart enough to know that if you don't actually capture an environment, say you're going to add one to every number in a list, right? So you want to do like dot map, pass in a closure that takes one argument X and adds one to every single X, and then collect that up into, you know, like the map join kind of thing to collect it into a new array. So that closure that you would pass to map, while it's a closure, it's taking that one argument X and doing X plus one. So it's not really capturing an environment at all. So there's actually no reason to have sort of like to allocate a bunch of extra memory because it turns out it's the same thing as a regular function. So the compiler is able to optimize that call away completely to the same thing as if it was a normal function and not a closure. And therefore, you're paying no overhead, even though like syntactically, it looks kind of like a closure. And you can kind of think of that applied to like almost everything in Rust. So for example, Rust has like methods 
but almost all of them are actually statically dispatched, like at compile time, as opposed to dynamically dispatched, where you need to like look through some sort of object hierarchy because we don't really have inheritance. So there's no way to say like this might resolve to a call on this class or this class is superclass or this class is superclass. So I have to do this runtime lookup to call functions that just doesn't actually really exist. And so part of it is through like the fact that these coding patterns don't strictly require this stuff. It's just the way those languages are built. And part of it is because as we were building a language, we were extremely sensitive to not include features that would like require this really heavy sort of like overhead. In a language that's like low level and focused on details, it's extremely hard to talk about the details like without code and or, you know, like there's a lot of details turns out. <laughs> so one thing I'm very curious about, and one of the things that drew me to Rust actually is the fact that its type system is, I guess, like, it's an ML type system. It is, like, a much more akin to something that you would see in a functional programming language like Haskell than you would in, like, regular C++ or Java. So now, Chris, acronym alert. What is an ML-style ty type system? Uh, a type system? I'm sure Steve can answer this better than I can, but uh, a type system that uses the Hindley-Milner algorithm for type inference? So it does a lot of the heavy lifting for you in terms of correctness. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I would say more accurately, ML is a programming language. It's the name of a language. So by saying like an ML-like type system, he means like a Java type type system is like a similar statement, but about a different language. I always forget what ML stands for specifically, but like OCaml is got ML at the end. So like OCaml is one of the languages in sort of the family of ML. There's like two branches of functional programming, which of course everything is wrong when you try to organize things this way, right? So like you could also argue Lisp is a third, but there's kind of like the Haskell style and the ML style are these two big sort of pillars of functional language stuff. And Rust tends to be in the ML sort of family. And there's lots of common features between, you know, families of programming languages and all that kind of stuff. But, like, I think the ultimate point that Chris is trying to make is, like, when I say that Rust is a type system, I do not mean it's, like, Java. Like, there is a wide variety of type systems, and they do all sorts of different things. And actually, Java's has been getting increasingly better over the years as well. But, like, it is much more akin to a functional language in the type system, which I think is, like, where you were getting at in terms of the actual question, right? Yeah, yeah. So actually, I just looked it up, and ML stands for meta language, and this actually is going to serve my question really well. So ML was originally designed for uh, theorem proving in math, which is part of why like it works really well in functional programming languages. But it also makes sense from if you use Rust, how the compiler works and the kinds of things that it catches with like relatively little effort on your part because it is originally designed to like completely prove out a theorem. And so the compiler is doing that to your program. So that leads into my question, which is uh, I recently heard someone else on the Rust core team talk about how one of the things that Rust really seeks to improve upon is concurrency and parallelism, which is historically very hard. And to do that, you could use things like mutexes or reference counting, which Rust has, but they also lean extremely heavily on the type system itself to sort of guarantee that your concurrent code is actually going to run safely. And on the one hand, I, I'm interested in like hearing you expound on that, but I'm also really curious how like the C, C++, Java programmers take to that sort of thing in Rust, because as I understand it, that is a pretty novel approach to that kind of problem. And I wonder if there's like pushback from the existing low-level systems community on that stuff. Yeah, I'll do the second part first, because it's a little simpler. So one thing that I will say is that a lot we sort of didn't appreciate over time because we were creating Rust for, you know, ourselves roughly who are the C++ programmers working on Firefox, which is weird to say ourselves because I was not literally one of those people, but like you get the idea, is like assuming that C++ people would be the primary audience. But it turns out that like a lot of people that program in C or C++ are like pretty happy with it and they like doing things that way. They're a lot smaller of a population than the number of programmers who do not program in those languages, which is like true for any language basically, right? Like the sum of all other people is bigger than just your specific thing. And so what that means, and I think that in retrospect, this seems obvious, but at the time it was like hard to figure out, or I definitely did not understand this at the time, that most people would come to Rust from not C or C++ than they would from C and C++ just even by virtue of numbers alone. And so 
a lot of the people who are not doing it are not doing it for reasons. So they've already like rejected it for some sort of purpose. And the people who are still doing it often are like happy with what's going on. So they're definitely a little skeptical at times of the kinds of things that we can accomplish. And also our success has been pushing C++ specifically to grow a lot of safety things. And so we hear a lot of um, people say like, oh, well, in five years, C++ is going to have this tooling that's going to make it, you know, also pretty safe, even if it's not as safe as Rust. So I'll just wait for that instead. Surprise, low-level programmers are an extremely conservative bunch in many uh, instances. <laughs> so the first part, which is the bigger and more interesting one, the type system is absolutely how concurrency works in Rust. And this is extremely powerful for a number of different reasons. The first one, and I think the fundamental reason why it's done this way, is that type systems don't have any runtime overhead. And when you're in a performance-heavy language, like that's really the key. So originally, like long ago in Rust, we actually had a garbage collector even, like a very long time ago in Rust. The primary goal was always safety, and we thought the only way to accomplish that was with lots of runtime checking and a heavy runtime and all these things. And so over time, as the type system grew, we realized we could use more and more of the type system to eliminate more and more of the runtime because types are checked at compile time, so they have no overhead costs, which is awesome. So like Rust references doing this validation that they're always valid is completely a compile time construct that at runtime, they're literally the same thing as C pointers. So that's one reason why the type system is really heavily you know, useful for concurrency, because like you want things to be safe, but you also don't want to slow them down. And like the whole point of concurrency in many instances is to get a speed up, right? So if you introduce too many safety checks to make sure that your concurrency stuff works, you lose all the gains that you were trying to get from being concurrent in the first place. So having that be like as low cost as possible is extremely important. The second one is, is that concurrent problems are extremely difficult to debug because you need to recreate the exact set of circumstances under which the bug happens. So like, you know, if you have a bug because you have two threads that have a particular access pattern on a particular variable, and that's where the bug is introduced, good luck coercing your operating system scheduler into scheduling those two threads in exactly the same way as when the bug happens, right? So like, to some degree, oh, the way that you fix a lot of concurrency bugs is by introducing an extreme amount of logging and then just kind of letting it run and praying that you hit into like the situation that causes the bug, right? So that's like really brutal and like doesn't really work. So by using the type system and verifying it up front, you just know it will work at runtime because you've already proved the concurrency property before your code even runs. So it's also just like a better debugging experience, I think, in general. The way that we accomplish this task is extremely novel. And I guess I should also say extremely novel to working programmers. Like almost all of Rust is built off of existing research that like has been known in academia for a relatively long time. That's actually one of the places where it gets the name from is that we're like taking 10-year-old ideas that have gained a little bit of Rust on them that have found usefulness and bringing them to like PL research. Like, hmm. so... Anyway, the way that we accomplish this basically is the type system in the standard library, the way that you spin up a new thread, it has this particular type signature. And that type signature says, only allow types to be sent to this new thread that are safe to pass between threads. And or like only allow references between this thread and that thread of types that are safe to use across threads. And so what that means is, is that when you try to, to spin up a thread and you pass in a thing that doesn't work, you get a type system error. Hey, turns out this is not a, a concurrent safe collection, so it does not have the prerequisite types, so therefore you cannot pass it to this thread, and you're done. And so that's sort of like at a, at a core level, like how, kind of how these things work. And so then, for example, mutex is a type that does have that property, so by sticking the non-concurrency thing into a mutex, now you can share it safely, and that means we've guaranteed at compile time that you've like safely done this kind of like you know transfer between threads and that kind of thing. And it's not just about mutexes, but that's sort of the, the general approach. The last thing I want to say briefly, because I just said a whole bunch of things, I'm sure I've raised a ton of questions here, is that... The other powerful thing about using the type system for concurrency guarantees is that other people can extend it. So if you write a library in Rust, your library will be exactly as concurrency safe as the standard library and as the language itself. It's not like, you know, we provide this set of concurrent collections and then we vetted our own implementations and then you're kind of on your own when building your own stuff. You can use those exact same types 
to help guarantee properties on your stuff and also build alternate threading situations as well that use these same things and the ecosystem all works together. So like everything is just concurrency safe by default because it's like a property of the type system instead of being built into the runtime or something. Wow. So is that also how you start to see, I know that recently there's been a lot of, I guess, excitement about this library called Tokyo. So I saw like, there's futures, which are kind of like promises in JavaScript. And then there have been like abstractions just kind of consistently being built up. And it seems like Tokyo is the next step and it's building towards a whole stack of kind of higher level concurrency things. And is what you just said what enables that kind of thing to happen? Yes. So Tokyo is using those exact same type system features in order to guarantee that when you have a chain of promises, to use the JavaScript terminology instead of future things, that you've, you know, make sure that they're safe. So this is not literally implemented yet, but so Tokyo, for those who have not paid hyper attention to the Rust space, because this is like a cutting edge, <laughs> the library is gearing up for an initial release like in the next week or two. So it's like basically, you know, soon after this, you hear this or maybe right before you hear this is just going to be released. So it's extremely cutting edge. But in some ways, it follows sort of the node model of concurrency. So there's event loops, you chain together, we call them futures, you call them promises together, you put that pile of future chain into an event loop and watch the concurrency kind of go. So one example of how, you know, Rust can do cool things is you could, this is not implemented yet, but it will be in the future, you could run, let's say, five event loops on five different threads. And then you just tell the like the the framework, hey, please run this future chain onto one event loop. I don't care which one. And then it will automatically like load balance across the five threads and five event loops because you've guaranteed at compile time that everything is safe to pass between threads. So we know that that's just trivial to do, and therefore it's like not a big deal. And we can add those kinds of like heavy duty features without worrying about introducing you know very subtle bugs, which is really cool. So that kind of leads me to my next question, which is at the front side, we are pretty into web development, uh, in case you didn't know. And I, <laughs> I, as someone who, like, I follow Rust a lot, I find it very interesting. But for the most part, I don't have a, a need to do systems programming on a regular basis. And I also wouldn't even really know where to start if I wanted to do systems programming. So as I learn Rust, I tend to always gravitate towards wanting to do things that I would probably do in like Ruby or Python, like write the back end for some web app or something. And that goes okay, but Rust is, is very much still in the process of building those abstractions to the point that it's relatively digestible. So I have a couple questions. One is, do you see Rust being a thing that would be used by web developers a lot more broadly? And two, how would you recommend that people like me who aren't really familiar with systems programming start to like dig into Rust like on a deeper level? Yeah, so I would like to think that web programmers will use Rust more often. And to be honest, originally I was extremely skeptical of this, but it's been changing rapidly as time has sort of gone on. And part of that is because as we've gained more experience, like actually programming and Rust stuff, the fact is Rust used to be a lot less ergonomic than it is. And now it's like fairly ergonomic and will only get more so in the future. And that's something that like web people, or at least I come from Ruby. So like Rubyists care a lot about ergonomics, like maybe more than anything else, frankly. <laughs> and so I think that what's really like, I'm not sure it's the first tool that you'll reach for. But I do believe that sometimes it makes a lot of sense. So like as one example that I will use, I'm not talk a whole lot about this, but basically um, NPM has started using Rust on the server side for powering the registry. And so they have three services in production now, but they were basically like, JavaScript is a language we all know, but is it the best language for doing this? We have a service that needs a little more oomph. So maybe let's rewrite that in Rust instead and like, you know, use it for those kind of things. So I think that there's a lot of situations for web developers where they don't realize they have the power to make things faster without just adding on more servers. And so I think that that's kind of like a compelling sort of instance. So like, any sort of background job, like any sort of job queue thing is like often better written in a faster language, but you would not reach for that faster language first because traditionally those faster languages have been terrible to use. Um, so I think if we continue to win on the ergonomics and continue to win the libraries, that web developers will reach for Rust like more often than not. 
in terms of the learning rust on a deeper level, I think that one of the one of the initial things, and it sounds like maybe you personally are a little past that, but maybe not people listening to this podcast, is that I do think that sort of building the things that you would normally build in Ruby or JavaScript or Python is the good first step. So for example, right now, Advent of Code has been like a really fantastic way of having these little programming projects. Um, if you haven't seen adventofcode.com, it's like every day in December up to Christmas, there's a new programming project you can like build a thing in. So I've been doing those in Rust, uh, and that's a lot of fun, and it's a good way to kind of like practice and gain some basic literacy. But after that, moving into low-level stuff, my personal thing, and I know something you've expressed interest in, in the past, is my side project is building an operating system in Rust. And more so than just that, the pitch is, hey, you've written JavaScript before. Let's write an operating system together. Here is this companion book, and I will show you how. And that's called Intermezos. And so it's like, I'm basically trying to rebuild an operating systems curriculum, but in Rust instead, like from nothing. Like we start off with assembly code and then move up into Rust code. Yeah, you can't even use anything like all the things that we've been describing, like threads and kernel level callbacks. You get none of that, right? You have to implement it all from scratch. Like you can't use POSIX or whatever, all those things that, you know, 90% of your code uh, ends up going through. It turns out that, uh, and it's sort of like for reasons that hopefully I'll be able to fix in the future, you need about like 200 lines of assembly code before you get into Rust, and then you basically don't need to use assembly again, really. So it's not that big of a barrier in terms of those intro things, and it's copy-paste stuff that I explain extremely heavily. So it's like totally an accomplishable thing, and then you're in like a real programming language, and you can you know, like do more normal things on top of it. But one thing about that, because it is my side project, the kernel is actually farther along than the tutorial is, and I actually need to find some time to write more of the freaking tutorial. But this is kind of my like my personal long-term project over the next you know let's say decade is to like have a completely free and open source tutorial for you to learn about operating system developments. So that's one of the things I've been doing. Another one that I think that is really extremely useful is once you gain some amount of literacy on this, you can actually start to learn more about how your regular programming language works. So I've been giving this conference talk recently. It's called like exploring Ruby through Rust. And I'm like, once you know this low level stuff and you sort of like gain this, this literacy, you can look at the source code of your language's interpreter and learn stuff about it. And you can like contribute to it maybe even. So in terms of like, and maybe that's not like, you know, the most practical thing or whatever, but I found that like, now that I've spent a bunch of time with Rust, I understand Ruby on a far deeper level than I ever did before, because now I'm not afraid to go poke around in the internals and learn how it like really works under the hood. And I understand what those internals do, you know, far, far better. Like maybe five years ago, I could have told you like Ruby's garbage collector is extremely basic, but I don't really know what that means. And now I can be like, oh yeah, Ruby has this mark and sweep, uh, you know, generational garbage collector, but it's not compacting or concurrent yet, but maybe in like a year or two. And like, now that's not a, just a bunch of buzzwords because I have this kind of like low-level literacy. Yeah, that's definitely something I forgot about. But every time I go learn something in Rust, uh, and initially I, this happened a lot, every time I do that and I go back to like JavaScript or something else, I find that Rust has like inadvertently taught me something about the language that I actually work on every day. Especially when it comes to things like references and values and the difference between them and debugging weird like prototype behavior in JavaScript became so much easier after I had spent some time working with Rust and had had to like actually deal with, you know, passing around references or dealing with lifetimes or having the compiler yell at me for a lot of things that I thought were totally normal that then going back to JavaScript, it's like, wait a second, suddenly a lot of these pieces are starting to fit together. And before, what was just this weird mystery, now I can totally see what is happening and start to think about how to fix it. Even though I don't even have the same tools that I do in Rust, it still is like extremely useful from that perspective. That's awesome. I'm glad to hear it. That's that's how I, definitely how I felt with Ruby, for sure. You know, in terms of actually using it for, you know, day-to-day -day stuff, you know, is there, are there plans? Are there, is the ecosystem already supporting things like, you know, say a web framework, like a low-level web framework like Sinatra or Express or even, you know, a higher one like Rails? So I guess like you've already qualified it as web stuff, but I would say in a broader sense, whether or not Rust is ready today for you depends entirely on the ecosystem. 
I feel like 80% as productive in Rust as I did ever in Ruby, but that's only if there's a library that I don't have to rewrite myself because it doesn't exist yet, right? And that number is actually growing rapidly. So I just looked because it's like the end of the year and our package ecosystem is actually doubled. And this is a request from earlier. I didn't explain cargo. So Rust basically has Bundler or Yarn slash NPM like built into the language itself. We distribute it you know, with Rust. And we have all that great package ecosystem shenanigans. So that's another great example of uh, Rust over a language like C is that the tooling, like basically what happened was Yehuda and I kind of showed up in Rust world and we're like, why are you still using make files? We know a better way. And they're like, okay. And then we built, like he built uh, the equivalent of Bundler for Rust. And then everyone was like, oh yeah, this is way better. We're not using make files anymore. So like the tooling f- situation is very familiar to a dynamic programming language person because we literally had the same people write the tools. That also means you can share packages freely and briefly. So the operating system development thing, it's totally intense to be able to use your package manager to download packages to help you build an operating system. So for example, like x86 has custom assembly instructions that you need to use when interacting with the hardware. And someone has already built a package on crates.io that wraps the inline assembly up in a nice to use Rust functions. And so I can just include that package and use it when building my operating system, which is like totally mind blowing to sort of bring that, yeah, like that NPM sort of feel into OS development is just like real intense and cool. So back to the ecosystem thing though. So for web applications specifically, it's good and also bad. So there's actually multiple different web frameworks already at different levels of comparison. So for example, you have Nickel, which is kind of like Sinatra, and you have Pencil, which is kind of like Flask and Python, which is also kind of like Sinatra. And then you have Iron, which is kind of like Express in JavaScript. And then there's also like, I know of at least two, one that has been worked on, but has not been actually released, but the code is at least open source yet. And I know a second that is being developed fully in private that has not had any public release yet. And then when this Tokyo stuff comes out, people are going to be building new frameworks on top of the new async shenanigans and or porting the async stuff into the existing frameworks. So we kind of have a lot of options but, you know, there's also a lot of, like, churn and activity and, like, stuff going on in that space. So that either terrifies you or makes you enthusiastic. <laughs> Basically, it's what I found. <laughs> we definitely don't have a Rails yet. And I don't think that's because a Rails will never exist, but because it's a much bigger project to build a Rails than to build a Sinatra. Yeah, and you just need those foundational pieces there in place before you really want to attempt that. And I think Tokyo is the real, real foundational piece, and it's just taken us a long time to put it all together. Like, the initial tests in Tokyo, we could do a Hello World benchmark, like the Tech Empower benchmarks. I don't know if you all are familiar with those things or not. They're like Hello World benchmark. We actually got faster than their like fat than all of them. It just edged out the fastest Whoa. Java, which is currently the reigning like benchmark on it. So like, that's like extremely compelling, even if like, after all this stuff is built on top of it, but it's taken us a while to build those foundations. And we're just getting that point. Like Tokyo is going to have a release, hopefully before Christmas, I've been assured by the end of the year, and then people are going to build stuff on top of it. And like, it's just going to sort of explode from there. So it's another little interesting kind of pitch I will give you for this is that One of the things that I like about Rust in an early ecosystem is it means that if you want to be like that person who built the library that does X that everyone uses, there's lots of opportunity in Rust world right now where there's a lot of like foundational libraries that like you could be the person who wrote that thing that everyone knows and loves and uses. Like JavaScript is still kind of there. In Ruby, every library basically exists already. So there's no more room to like, you know, kind of build a foundational thing. But if you're someone who likes working on open source and that story is compelling to you, like getting involved in a younger ecosystem means you can have a much larger, you know, impact. So yeah, so like I maintain the Semver library that things use. And the only reason that's true is because I was around before we had one. And then Yehuda wrote the initial version and now I'm maintaining it. But like there's tons of space out there. So if writing a web framework is a thing that's interesting to you, Rust is a great place to like explore actually doing that at the, at the moment. Wow. So, Steve, one of the things that I know you do is you actually write the Rust book. And I heard that you're also in the process of rewriting it along with Carol Goulding, I believe. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah. As part of the Steve getting the job writing the docs on Rust thing, I kind of, you know, was working on lots of stuff. And so up to Rust 1.0, we knew we needed to have some sort of, you know, long form explain all the things in Rust. So that became what's called the Rust programming language, which I named so because the C programming language and the C++ programming language are the, the names of the foundational books for those languages. So I wanted it to continue kind of in that tradition. But there was some problems with that, which is, I'll say that I'm a little harder on my own work than I think other people are. So I hear people tell me all the time that they love the Rust book and that it's like one of the best programming books they've ever written. But I think it's not that great. And <laughs> the reason why is also because I just know that the way in which I wrote it. So you have to remember that like, so Rust 1.0 happened in 2015, May of 2015. And so we were working on the language for like six or eight years before 1.0 happened. So there was lots of changes. Language is changing like on a daily basis. And now it's super stable, like super, super, super stable. But what that also means is in some like deeper kind of like philosophical sense, nobody had had experience programming in what really was Rust yet because we were still like finishing building it. So like, how do you write a book on a language that like the precursor language is what you're using and you're trying to see like, what is it going to actually end up being like at 1.0? Because it's not like we could just say it's done. Now go write a book, Steve, and then we'll release it at that time. Right. So kind of the circumstances in which I wrote the original book were I had a very intense deadline of this has to be done by the 15th of May. While the language was coming together, you know, it takes a couple months to put together a book. So I had to make sure that the stuff I was starting, I wouldn't need to go back and refix. So that also means that I was like much more vague in some places where pieces were still falling into place. And you're like, okay, this is definitely going to be the same, but this might change. So I'm going to leave that part off. And then I just had to plow through it because of the deadline. So like all those things coming together means that I kind of put together this book that while good and I'm proud of the work that I did, I can do much better. So at this point in time, we now have a full year and a half after Rust 1.0 has come out. So I know the struggles that people have when learning Rust. I know the ways in which they succeed and or fail. And I've talked to a lot of people. So I'm sort of rewriting the book now, bringing that knowledge and understanding in, as well as the fact that, you know, the language has been around for a minute, so it's much easier. And as part of that, I brought on Carol. She goes by Carol Nichols or Goulding. She uses both her maiden name and her married name. She's been one of my best friends for a very long time. So I'm extremely happy that she's my co-author on this book. But uh, the two of us together are sort of working on doing the rewrite. And I think that it is possibly the best thing I've ever done or worked on as far as books go. Like, I'm extremely happy with it. And you can read it online right now if uh, you want to and see if I'm right or wrong about that. But I think it's a far better book than the original book was. And so it's actually going to be published through No Starch as well. Um, and we're donating all the proceeds to charity since we're you know, being paid to actually write the book in the first place, like by Mozilla. It's going to be a much, much easier and better way to learn the language, I think, as well. If you want to check that out, where can we find the new version? It is, and I, I'll give you a link to put in show notes or whatever as well, but it's uh, rust-lang.github.io slash book. There's also just like a book repo in the Rust Lang organization on GitHub, and you know either of those things will. Like all things in Rust is being developed fully in the open, so you can sort of read the drafts and you know what's been done. We're, we're getting towards the end, slowly but surely, so um, you know, hoping that's going to be done relatively soon. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Well, fantastic. Sounds like the documentation is there. It's excellent. The community is there. It's excellent. And from what I'm hearing, like the kind of the tower of the ecosystem is really being built up. Uh, it's not as high as uh, a bunch of other places, but it's definitely high enough to jump in and get your feet wet. If you're, you know, coming from almost any walk uh, uh, of programming. It's a lot of work, but we seem to be doing good. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for stopping in uh, and talking about this with us, uh, Steve. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Now, Chris, we're going to have to like, we, we do need to kind of uh, figure out what is going to be our Rust project here at the front side. Sold. I am up for that challenge. Yeah, that'll be some Christmas homework. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, take care, everybody. And uh, thanks as always for listening. And we'll see you next week. Bye.